This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're right here every day bringing you the latest news from the worlds of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. And of course, Carol, that's part of a team of 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. And Jason, you can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio every weekday. Or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News. New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio talking about a recent uptick of virus cases in some neighborhoods around New York. And so certainly there are some increased concerns about the virus once again here in the city. Meanwhile, J&J has begun dosing as many 60,000 volunteers in a study of its vaccine. That's a big deal. Goldman Sachs, though, and HSBC, meantime, they're among the companies pausing plans to return workers to the office in London. So there is a lot going on. Back with us is Dr. Joanne Roberts. She's Chief Value Officer, Providence St. Joseph Health, one of the largest healthcare systems in the U.S. We've talked with them before. Uh, remember, Washington really was at the center of the virus in the U.S. from day one. Dr. Roberts joining us on the phone from Everett, Washington. Um, Dr. Roberts, so nice to have you here with uh, Jason and myself. How are you? I'm well. How are you all in, in, on the East Coast? We're doing okay, just watching those numbers very carefully. But worried, I think. I yeah. think it's fair to say we're worried, Dr. Oh. Roberts. And, and I wonder how worried you are and how worried we should be. Well, I think we, I don't want to, you know, we don't want to over-worry, but we all want to be judicious in how we approach uh, the coming season. Well, so and, how should we approach the coming season? Uh, well, you know, the, I heard you say there's a lot going on, and there is a lot going on, but in, in many ways, a lot of it is a lot of noise. I think uh, we have to look at the coming season like we've been looking at the last six months. It is all going to get back to those basic things that I've talked about before, uh, whether we're talking about uh, the COVID uh, itself, which is starting to come up again. Uh, we're seeing more cases again or whether we're even talking about flu, which is going to be on the horizon here in another month or two. And so what do we know at this point, Dr. Roberts? And I sort of alluded to this when we were talking about it a little earlier in the show. What do we know now that will help us effectively contain outbreaks that we know are going to come, right? We, the, the, there's no vaccine. There's no cure for this. And so... I think it's impossible to think it's like this is just going to go away. So we're going to see some outbreaks. What do we know about the most effective ways to deal with it? Is it just the simple things that we know, or how should we be thinking about it? So, um, sure, Jason. So I think there's what do we know is in two ways. One is what do we know and what can we do as individuals. The other is what do we know and what can we do as communities and. I'll talk about the communities first, uh, because I think you mentioned New York. I think New York has done a great job. Many of the states that were hit so badly earlier this year around New York, everyone is doing much, much better with testing. And with that testing capability that you all have out there, what we're seeing is we're able to identify little hot spots of disease. So rather than New York, or Boston or a large city being really blindsided with COVID, when we test a lot, we can see neighborhoods or even parts of neighborhoods 
with COVID breaking out, and then we can come in and really put in our efforts around masking and distancing to keep that un- under, keep that COVID infection from spreading further. I mean, it's as Does simple as, sense? yeah, but I mean, it's as simple as this, right? I mean, Jason and I joke about it a lot, like wear a mask, because if you go to the CDC website, it's like wear a mask, <laughs> you know, even the head, right? The director of the CDC said that's almost more potent right now, certainly, or could be as of as much as a, a as a vaccine would be. So when we see these bursts in whether it's New York City or other places of the country or over in the UK, is it just simply because people are not wearing masks and they're not social distancing? Is it just as simple as that? Or is it because as the world gets colder or is there something environmental that we're just going to unfortunately have to live with the second wave of this? No, it is as simple as that. But we also are going to have to live with the second wave of it because um, we can keep this under control. I think Dr. Redfield said it well last week to Congress. While we all wait for vaccines that we hope we're going to be effective, the most effective thing we have right now is a mask. Yeah. Um, so, go ahead. No, 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 please finish. Yeah, so most effective thing is a mask. The second most effective thing is just reducing the number of people that you interact with and keeping distance from them. It is that simple. Talk to us about the flu, the common, the, the more seasonal flu and, and how that plays in here. Well, it plays in really well because the same things that we're doing around COVID, we will keep flu under wraps if we keep those masks on and keep that distancing. And then, of course, with flu, we have vaccine. We know the vaccine works. And so getting getting your flu shot early is going to be a great idea. You know what I wanted to ask you, Dr. Roberts, because I actually was at the doctor this morning and wanted to get a flu shot. And they're like, really sorry, but the flu shots haven't come in from the West Coast because of the fires, that there have been delays. And I just thought, I'm just curious. And then I got into a conversation with the doctor who was saying that, you know, there are some concerns, I think, about production gearing up for vaccines for the virus, the COVID-19 virus. So I do wonder... Do we need to be worried? Will there be enough flu vaccines? Will they come in time so that we don't have to pile that on top of our worries? Uh, Sure, Carol. I think we are in great shape with flu vaccine. I'm a little surprised that your doctor didn't have the vaccine. I know that it's uh, stocked pretty much across the western and central United States. I I had not checked into the eastern states, but um, clinics have been set up pretty much throughout the western two-thirds of the U.S., um, and I think there's not going to be a problem of shortages with the uh, flu vaccine. On COVID, we are making plans now. We are, we're starting to make our plans for uh, how we're going to vaccinate folks when vaccine becomes available. And we are penciling in late November as a time when we hope to see the first vaccine. And we think that we probably would see adequate supplies about nine months later. Interesting. So in the meantime, uh, talk to us about schools, because, you know, both elementary and secondary high school, but also colleges. I mean, this has become one of the critical questions and one of the critical, I I dare say, sort of controversies that we're all looking at right now. How do you read it? Well, Jason, I think the, the primary and secondary schools, I think, are one topic and colleges are a yes. totally separate topic. And I, I will say, I think there's no more difficult 
circumstance to deal with for policymakers than primary and secondary schools. Agreed. How if you bring kids back, even in places that have low prevalence of disease right now, if you bring kids back, it's hard to socially distance kids, especially grade schoolers. How do you keep them from sharing their fluids? I mean, gosh, we've all had kids in grade school. It's yeah. tough. Yeah. And and so I, I think uh, I, I, we see a lot of districts trying lots of approaches, maybe a hybrid approach in areas where there's very little outbreak right now, mm-hmm. and then more home, you know, virtual schooling in places with higher outbreaks. Listen, one thing I want to bring in are Vince Signorella, who we talked at, uh, he watches the markets for us. We talked with him at the top of our broadcast, uh, Dr. Roberts, and he just sent us a headline from the Washington Post. Study shows coronavirus is mutating, potentially evolving. (sighs) Like we don't have enough to worry about. What does that mean? We would expect that. And we've seen mutations already in in virology. Mutations are expected. They're common. And generally, with new viruses, mutations are good news. um, Because? Because? They tend to become less virulent. Okay. So when we see mutations with early, uh, with new viruses, they tend to be less, they, they create less severe disease than the previous. But do we have to keep chasing new vaccines to deal with it or no? And just got about 30 seconds here. Don't know yet. Too right. early to tell. Um, but uh, those vaccine makers are expecting mutations to occur. Yeah. So you can be assured that they are designing for those mutations. All right. Well, we always learn so much from you and your team. We really appreciate it. Dr. Joanne Roberts, Chief Value Officer at Providence St. Joseph Health, joining us from Washington State, of course. That is where we all first heard about and encountered this from a domestic perspective. So they, Dr. Roberts and her team, have been watching this so closely and uh, have been very kind to share a lot of those findings with us. And, you know, keeping us honest on candidly, Carol, what we know, what we don't know, what the best advice is at any given time. One of the things that's clear we do know the best way to at least fend this off. Wear a mask. Wear a mask. Social distancing. It works. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. This week, a special equality issue of Bloomberg Business Week magazine. It's a compliment to today's Bloomberg Equality Summit and the cover story about how it's time for a new approach to cure inequality because capitalism, well, folks, it just isn't cutting it. Let's get into this story with Bloomberg News diversity and sustainability reporter Rebecca Greenfield. She's on the phone in Brooklyn. Also with us, Bloomberg Business Week editor Jill Weber on the phone in Massachusetts. Um, Very provocative cover story here, Joel. Yeah, and um, credit to Rebecca, who has done a number of stories for us this year, and I think this is her second cover um, in in this space. And when we sort of started talking to her about how, how we wanted to approach the equality issue, I think she really came at it almost like a little bit of a sequel to her last cover story. And it was the idea that, the last time it was the idea that um, businesses just have a dearth of of, of black uh, or minority CEOs, people of color, um, mm-hmm. and with a really, really provocative uh, cover that showed just how white the Fortune 500 is. And this time, I think it, she went a, even a little bit bigger about this and said, look, like actually the force that companies have been relying on here is the market. The market is supposed to correct things, and it's cl- clearly not working. 
and e- even more provocative, I think, is this idea that within HR departments, DNI, the Diversity and Initiative Crew, has actually been part of the problem almost. Becca, pick it up from there. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. And I, yeah, definitely also see it as a follow-up to my last piece. But like Joe said, the driving force behind diversity and inclusion initiatives for the last three decades has been this a market-driven approach. So this idea that, you know, discrimination and inequality is bad for business. Um, you know, you're, you're losing out on productive people if you discriminate against people just because of what they look like. And also there's so much research showing that diverse teams are just better and more productive. And this has been driving the DNI department and, you know, billions of dollars of industry to get more people who are women and minorities into high-paying jobs. And in the piece, um, I get into how that hasn't worked, but also, you know, how the George Floyd protests this summer um, have led to a bit of a shift in thinking away from this kind of dominant theory. And so, Becca, what are people actually doing about it? I mean, part of what, you know, I know you and your team have described is this is obviously moving from the fringes into the mainstream, into the main conversation. That's one of the pillars of everything we're doing with the Equality Summit. But what sort of actual movement are we seeing or is the entire point that we're not actually seeing anything? So we actually are seeing some changes. And I think the biggest thing is, I know this is not going to sound as big, but it's a mindset shift. So before it was kind of like diversity is good. And now it's like, okay, racism is still happening. And so we need to do things to combat racism. I think we can add that to other isms, that racism has been the focus um, for the summer for good reasons. So I think that's been a big shift because you do different things once you start thinking about it in terms of fixing racism as opposed to promoting diversity. And I think the biggest thing that I've noticed that's more tangible than a mindset shift is things that look very similar to and I would describe as quotas, um, which is what my first article was about. Which I remember that. that. That was really great because I really th- thought about that. You know, does this is this what we need to do? Yeah, I think companies, although they are reluctant to actually call it that because they're very scared of the word for various reasons, they right. are saying like we are going to aim to have a certain number or percentage of black people or Latinx people in certain high paying, high power roles. And that is different. They have not done anything that aggressive before the Black Lives Matter protest. And I think it's things like that that might move the needle more or at very least it's trying something different. And that's a big shift in the last couple of months compared to the last 30 years. Becca, one of the most provocative things, um, I, I'm going to steal your thunder a little bit, um, or at least let you steal your own thunder, uh, <laughs> is your opening anecdote from 2017 um, that is about Apple. Can you share that one? Because it's such a provocative way into the story. Yeah. So in 2017, the woman who was heading up Apple's diversity and inclusion department, she's speaking at a conference, and she said, in her remarks, she said, there can be 12 white, blue-eyed, blonde men in a room, and they're going to be diverse. And they're going to bring a different life experience and life perspective to the conversation. And she apologized for those remarks because, you know, people said, uh, you know, that's not really diversity. But it was revealing that, that the mission to get more women and minorities up and down the corporate ladder had really become diluted and had really become driven by this idea we just need diversity of thought and experiences. And when you think like that, yeah, it's true. Like a certain, you know, white 
blonde, blue-eyed man from New York City is going to be different than a white, blue-eyed, blonde man from somewhere else. But it does not has nothing to do with the original mission of getting more women and minorities higher up the corporate ladder. You know, the one thing is, and I think about targets, right? I mean, if we want transparency, like we need to, unfortunately, especially early on, look at the numbers, find out where we're lacking as companies and institutions, Rebecca, right? And then it is kind of a simple fix if you just set some targets to say, okay, we need to consciously think about this and make sure we up the numbers. That's how you can kind of change this, it feels like, in a, in a, in a much faster manner. Yeah, and I think the one thing that's missing from that is mm. where are the consequences? And I think right now it's self-imposed, and I think you know it's up to journalists and the consumers and whoever to, to say, like, okay, where are you on this? You know, you made this, this promise or target, you know, in five years and you met it. Um, but, th- you know, the things that work are, you know, chastising people when they don't when they don't meet their their quotas, and we've seen that before with um, the California Boards Law, which I've also written about before, that, you know, uh, there's a penalty, $100,000, which, you know, isn't a ton of money for big companies, but there is a penalty if you don't have a woman on your board. And I think, and that really moved companies to move. So we'll we'll see if kind of the, the public reckoning is enough to keep companies honest, but I definitely think, yeah, the target is the step one. Step two is, is pressure. Right. Right. Well, uh, we love your work and the work that you've been doing, not just for Bloomberg Business Week, but really running this team that is taking this on uh, has been spectacular. So thank you, Rebecca Greenfield. Really good to catch up with you. Rebecca Greenfield, she oversees all of the managing diversity coverage for Bloomberg. She joined us on the phone from New York, Joel Weber, the editor of the magazine, the special equality issue. He joined us from Massachusetts. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. All right. So for Business Week Economics today, let's head down to the ATL. Brad Dillman is there, Chief Economist for Cortland. He's been looking at the home sales numbers, existing home sales numbers, and the broader housing data, because housing we know, Carol, is such an important indicator of where we are where we've been, where we're going, especially. And we all want to know where the heck we're going right now. So, Brad, really nice to catch up with you. What's the most important thing we need to know? Actually, before I ask you that, because you're in the ATL, my hometown, um, how is it down there? What's going on? What's going on in Georgia? It's great. It's great down here. You know, we finally got rid of that hot weather. You look at our housing market, it's doing okay, too. I think we've seen some outperformance in multifamily more than we had expected, given the condition. Kids back in school? Like, what's going on around town? Uh, Well, our first grader is going to be doing homeschooling this year. Um, I think it varies uh, city to city, uh, but I don't actually know because I only got a first grader and kids in preschool, so I don't focus on the. On schooling, I focus on housing. We there know, you go. we know, we know, we get that. We totally get that. But what, I guess what we're trying to get at is, as we we talk with with individuals around the country, we do like to check in with them about how's it going on the virus. Because we had some news today of some you know clusters uh, in New York City where we're starting to see virus cases pick up again. So we're just wondering how's Atlanta doing? Yeah. So as far as the virus directly. You know, it's Georgia has picked up a little bit, but it isn't anything that's really affecting our day to day. Our office here at Cortland has been open for several months now. Interesting. Uh, most of our folks choose to come in. Uh, we do have a mask policy, so people abide by that. And if you go out, there are people at the restaurants. So there's definitely still uh, a social atmosphere going on and that kind of thing. But, you know, 
our traffic is down by a lot, and, and candidly, that makes it a lot more livable. Yeah. Oh, my God. It's like Los Angeles sometimes cool. in its worst moments uh, down in Atlanta. Well, what's interesting yeah. is you, your company is actually a multifamily real estate company. So you're involved in construction, design, property management, you know, all of it. So you do have a very strong window or clear window, if you will, into what's going on in the housing market. You said traffic is down. Talk to us a little bit about what you're seeing. Uh, well, when I meant traffic, I meant traffic as on the road. Oh, okay. Uh, we're Sorry. still seeing plenty of interest in the communities itself. You are? You know, m- yeah, multifamily occupancies had been at roughly a 20-year high prior to COVID. Now, they have come down a little bit. Atlanta has held up you know, just fine. We haven't had any, any notable issues here. Our segment is really more at sort of a high B, low A kind of a framework, and that is generally a white-collar worker that hasn't been affected by the kind of job losses we've seen in leisure and hospitality. But if we go back to national, you know, you had a very, very tight market when it comes down to occupancies. They've come down a bit. We think they may go down further, but we actually think there's the potential they could tighten back up uh, in about a year to a year and a half. And we may see the reemergence of some of those cost of living pressures that we had, that had really dominated a lot of social narratives back about a year to a year and a half ago. Yeah. So what about the sort of geographic shifts that we're seeing, especially from sort of a white collar perspective, you know, with people saying, well, if I don't need to be in a New York or a San Francisco or Los Angeles, you know, I may favor moving to a Nashville and Atlanta and Austin, Denver. Is that manifesting yet in the data that that you're seeing either within the company's holdings or in the more national data that you're seeing? Yeah, this has been a trend for some time. So I'd actually say that migration to the Sun Belt, uh, which is precisely Cortland's strategy is to be in the Sun Belt. Migration really peaked about four or five years ago, and it's actually been slowing. Hmm. Now, it's still underway. It's still very accretive to those jurisdictions to be getting net inbound migrants from the Northeast and the West Coast. It's still really helping to drive rents and activity generally. It's not what it was four years ago. Now, when we look at it in terms of COVID, we don't really see a lot of data yet. But what we do see is what we can see anecdotally and what we capture in our own data. Cortland is the largest owner of multifamily apartment homes in both Atlanta and in DFW. That's Dallas-Fort Worth. But essentially what we can see there is we can still see anecdotal evidence. That's to say the the people who are coming in to tour our units or people who tour our units online, where they are and where they're coming from. And we're definitely still seeing a movement of people out of the Northeast. And in particular, in Phoenix, we're seeing a lot of folks from California still moving into Arizona and taking a look at our communities. So what's, what kind of visibility do you have and what maybe 2021 well, looks like? Yeah, so we run a suite of forecasting models. We forecast about 45 metropolitan areas in the United States, maybe 600 submarkets. And we forecast effective rent growth and occupancies and supply and demand. And what we're seeing right now is still an expectation for a slowdown over the next, call it, six months. We expect annual rent growth to actually be negative in its, in its upcoming prints and probably trough in Q1 of next year. And then we expect the market to retighten in the second half of 2021. So All market right. to tighten in the first half of 2021? Yeah, interesting. Oh, second half. Second half. Se- second of, half. Of okay. Yeah, okay. so a little bit of weakness in the year term near term, once, you know, the election uncertainty is behind us, once mm. we get a little bit further in what at least so far has been a, a V-shaped recovery uh, in employment markets, we expect that we'll see a retightening in multifamily. And I should say a lot of this really goes back to some of the actions that had been taken by policymakers coming out of the Great Recession. 
and that was to stimulate home prices, even though housing was oversupplied and even though labor markets were in a terrible condition. The result of that has been a, you know, a, a large difficulty in delivering housing supply in any kind of scale uh, over the last 10 years. And, I, and by our estimates and the estimates of others, this is what has contributed to a prevailing undersupply of housing in the country, not just in terms of listed inventory, but the physical product for people to live in. Interesting. All right. Well, thanks for the update. We really appreciate it. Good luck down there in Atlanta. Brad Dillman, Chief Economist for Cortland, joining us on the phone from the ATL. Hopefully he can help the Falcons get a win because they are really having a tough time. But just saying, our buddy Arthur Blank had a very, very bad weekend. <laughs> Again, right? Again. Yes. Yeah. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no. No, no, no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. All right, time for the drive to the close. Let's check in with Mark C. Smith. He's Vice President of Wealth Management Portfolio Manager for UBS Financial Services. He joining, he's joining us on the phone from New York City. Mark, how are you? How are things? Well, you know, we're doing the best we can under the circumstances. Uh, you know, most of us are still working from home, but yeah. we're going in the office from time to time. So we're just making the best of it. Yeah. Yeah. And so how does that change the way that like you deal with clients and sort of talk to them? Because I'm sure everybody's in similar circumstances, but it's got to change the way that your sort of world operates, I would imagine. Yeah, it's it's, it's turned everybody's life upside down. But I think what this is uh, bringing to everyone is, is resiliency. And yeah. I'm, I'm seeing that firsthand every single day with my clients. I have clients that own restaurants. They're completely changing their model to ordering online and delivery service, and that's making up much of their revenue, especially the ones that are in New York. Uh, but the ones that have some clients that have uh, restaurants and airports, I mean, they're just they have no way of getting out of this um, because ridership's down 75 percent on most Ameri- uh, U.S. carriers. So those folks are really struggling. Uh, you're seeing, though, that the professional class folks that can work from home with a with a with a laptop are saving up an extraordinarily amount of extraordinary amount of money and they're able to purchase homes in the suburbs and that's why you're seeing uh sales in the suburbs at record highs uh you're seeing a flight from you know major metropolitan you know areas because you're 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 an apartment building so many of my clients are just are are high talent in new york and going to the hamptons or connecticut and deep in jersey where uh, they're getting, you know, sometimes doubling their living space. Yeah. Does yeah, it we're stick? definitely seeing it. Does it stick, Mark, or do you think it's just until we get through this? I mean, a house purchase is not something you buy and then, like, uh, change your mind the next week. But I, I get that. But I'm just curious. This is changing the paradigm for, for probably our generation. Hmm. Uh, I think that it's going to be very difficult to tell folks to come back in when they worked for a full year, possibly two, from home and productivity didn't go down, it went up. So I don't see any employer telling folks who, who are doing well in this environment that they have to go back to the office when a vaccine is distributed in, in the next you know three or four years. Because let's be honest, even if it's, we get a vaccine next year, you're talking about a two-year 
implementation of getting that out to 300 million plus Americans. So, you know, that's the reality is that once we figure this out and folks are adapting quickly and they're continuing to make money, you're seeing that in some of the S&P 500 stocks. I mean, folks are really killing it in this environment. Right. Unfortunately, the rest of the country isn't. And but so Mark, if you're working for one of those companies that, are, that is doing really well, right. you, I don't see them making you come back to the office. Right. And we're going to talk to General Mills, the CEO. They reported earnings today, you know, and people have been stocking up their pantries. And so we're going to get an idea of kind of what the outlook is. Um, we want to move on to the markets. But one more question. You talk about, you know, nobody really pressuring because productivity is we're doing, you know, doing well in a lot of industries and companies. We're seeing it play out in the market. Having said that, there is pressure, though, within the financial sector, it seems like, for people to get back to office, especially in New York City. Well, I think what the financial sector is realizing is that they have the biggest, uh, you know, foothold in lending money out for the purchases of commercial property, residential property. They have the biggest amount to lose if things don't get back to somewhat of normality pretty quickly because they're on the hook for billions of dollars of these build outs of these major cities. So they've got to lead by example because they've got the most to lose, in my opinion. And so they've, they've got to get workers back in. They've got to start building some confidence in these major cities. Otherwise, people are just going to cut and run, and they're going to be left with the bag. That's my opinion. That's really interesting. You sort of have to prove that you're in it so that yeah. uh, so that your clients ultimately will uh, pony up. Very interesting. So, Mark, we are talking all the time on this show, I think probably around our kitchen tables, our dining room tables, when we're socially distanced with neighbors and, and whatnot, about the election. Uh, you know, we're... 41, 42 days away uh, at this point. As an investor, how should you be thinking about this? This is going to be one of those consequential elections of our generation because you have you know, two completely different candidates. Uh, the country split you know, uh, down the middle depending on where you live. And that, this is going to create a, a tremendous amount of volatility in portfolios for the next 40-odd days. And there's, there's good reason to that. We have, you know, 60 million people out of, uh, have, a, have applied for unemployment over the last 26 weeks, you know, and right now uh, we're, we're kind of ignoring them. We're just kind of looking at the S&P 500. And so that's yeah. going to play out in this, in this election as well so, in, in a big way. I don't think we're I think we're underestimating how many people are hurting in this country. And then, and then you, you're dependent on a stimulus plan. Let me tell you something. If the Republicans shove a, sec, uh, a Supreme Court justice um, in the next 40 days, I don't see any reason why the Democrats would go and, and, and help them out get a second stimulus package in. We need a second stimulus package. That's why the markets are reacting the way they are today. We're down 600. It's because we don't see any end in sight, no help in sight from the federal government besides what the Fed has already done. Rates are basically zero. There's not much more they can do. They've got to look to Congress. Congress now has a huge issue. They are split it out to the Supreme Court, and they're not going to work together until they figure that out. Therefore, we don't see a stimulus package probably until uh, 2021. How many Americans can deal with that amount of uncertainty? So this election is going to be huge in, in that um, folks are trying to figure out how they're going to be able to make money with a Democrat or Republican in office. Depending on who you are, I, 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 I understand why you would fall on either side of the coin. But the problem is, is that until this is all sorted out, it will not be sorted out on November 3rd. Right. So that's additional volatility to what we have right now. So, you know, that's the, that's the real thing. How much yeah. more upside do we have in this market to stay in with all this uncertainty around us? I feel like the debate needs to be, is it going to be the distressed investment story going into 2021? Or will it be, you know, the recovery cycle uh, in terms of what, what the story and theme will be? 
we can't recover without a vaccine. Right. Bottom line. So uh, if we don't have a vaccine, we're not recovering. How could we move forward in the economy and in the stock market? It's going to be very hard to do because because people are going to continue to close down their schools, their businesses, their restaurants, um, opening and closing until there's a vaccine. And how do you get back to normal? If that's happening. Right. And seeing it already in London and some worries about uh, certain parts of uh, New York City. Hey, Mark, great to have you here. Look forward to having you join us again uh, in the future. Mark C. Smith, uh, VP of Wealth Management and Portfolio Manager at UBS Financial Services on the phone from New York. Coming in hot. Kind of like that. I like it. Thanks so much for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, you can always listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News.